Welcome to In The Isles, a movie and TV podcast. I'm James Rothwell. And I'm Dan Acton. This week, we'll be talking about what we've been watching. We'll talk real news and our main review is The Trial of the Chicago 7. And apologies right out the gate, yet again, because last week we promised you a spoiler-ridden review of The Boys Season 2 and fear not, it is still coming but me and James were having a bit of a chat and what we realised we've done is we've led up to Halloween reviewing all the non-horrory Amazon Welcome to the Blumhouse specials. But we're not actually giving you any real genuine horror content. So we will be releasing a bonus episode where we review the Shudder exclusive Scare Me. Scare Me, which is something you do not want to miss. Sign up for a seven-day free trial of Shudder. Or should you skip it? James might have a different opinion. Anyway, you can find that episode drop on Saturday, on Halloween itself. So please check your feed, give us a listen, and maybe you'll find a worthwhile recommendation for your Halloween Eve. How are you? I'm, I'm good, thanks. Not much to tell. Uh, I've had three power cuts today. That's been fun. The alarm going off. Can't stop it at all. Neighbours getting annoyed. Can't stop it. It's not my fault. Move on. Um, my radiator's broke in my front room as well, so that's not great. But small wins in the world that we live in today. James, you're a PlayStation consumer. Do you utilise the nifty little feature of plugging your headphones into the controller so that you can listen to the TV audio through your controller? Yes, I do, even when I'm not playing games. It's, it's, a, it's a really nice function, that, that I don't think gets enough credit. So this week, I decided to kit out our bedroom with a Roku device. And that has the same sort of thing. So you can listen to the Roku through your phone. And it's such a nice little feature that I want to encourage everyone, go out there and buy yourself a Roku. Sod Amazon Fire Sticks. Although I think you can achieve the same thing with Bluetooth headphones. Not the point. Get yourself a Roku. Sponsored by Roku. I'm going to be completely open and honest with you. I don't know what a Roku is. It's... It's a poor man's version of a fire stick. It's not actually. It's, it's, it's as good as. In fact, I find them a bit quicker, but they're cheaper as well. £29 from your local Argos. Yeah. It's double, double endorsement of Roku and Argos. Yeah. Please sponsor us. Please. We'll get there. We'll get there one day. I was also thinking of a way to get some extra income. I was thinking of volunteering to the Trafford Centre in Greater Manchester, to become a coronavirus sheriff. Just walk around for less than minimum wage, or they can just pay me in food, walking around, encouraging people to maintain the one-way system, to keep your mask on, and don't gather around the exits, smoking, standing next to the no-smoking signs. I gather from this that this is a, a personal experience that you, you've had recently, which has led you down this path. Yes, yes. You don't fare very well in public, do you? No, no, I, no. <laughs> it's not your fault, just to be clear. I'm not putting that on you. I'm just saying. Just, yeah. But move on. Yep. James, shall we start with you? What have you been watching in the last week? I have watched half of the new series of Utopia on Amazon Prime. This is the remake of the 2013-14 Channel 4 cult classic set in America with a American cast. 
I have not seen the Channel 4 original. I came into it with no expectations. I'd not even seen a trailer for either the original or for this one. I was coming in blind. I had no idea what it was about, which is that there is a, a comic book that appears to predict the future, including many calamities. And a sequel to that comic is discovered and our protagonists, a group of comic book fans and a evil organization fight for possession of this comic and the future, maybe, I don't know. So that's what happens. This new series on Amazon Prime has come under some criticism. IMDb ratings very low. I understand that fans of the original didn't like it, but you know what? I'm enjoying it. I am enjoying it. I think it might need some more style to it. The main characters can seem a bit flat at times and uninteresting, but the plot is engaging. The performances are good. The ultra-violence is something that I wasn't expecting at all. There's so much violence in this that I did not see coming. Maybe I would have if I'd seen any kind of trailer or any plot synopsis at all. But the level of violence and unpredictability is making it really exciting. Um, is it the boys' level of brutality? It's not the graphic violence of the boys, like people's heads and entire bodies exploding. It's more the high body count right? Okay. that there is. There is a assassin character who racks up a huge body count in the first two episodes, and it means that you just don't know what's going to happen. It really seems like anything can happen, and it's interesting. And the whole mystery of this comic book and how did it predict the future, what is the code to it, and f- having people chase this MacGuffin around, basically, is interesting. And there's a plot involving a flu pandemic spreading, which is, again, unfortunate timing for this, but that is just interesting to watch as well and see the conspiracy, the evil corporation conspiracy unfold. Likely to feed a few tin foil hat wearing people a bit more to chew on with this i'm sure they'll be like this has been in development for years to predict a coronavirus utopia predicted coronavirus yeah it's about a comic that predicts viruses and this is a tv program that is predicting a virus and they link it into real events with sars and they say sars was this big thing that happened and that was a conspiracy and now this one what's that about and it's all too real the timing is uh, unfortunate yeah just like last week's tit lake to steal your joke yeah it's exactly like that which does make you think there is a conspiracy because there's so many of them mm. there's, there's to the lake utopia la revolution is about an illness spreading around paris cashing in on the corona dirty evil hollywood executives but you'd recommend i'm glad to hear that i would You've seen the original, haven't you? Yes. Did you really, really like that? I I loved it, but not enough to watch the last episode or the second season, but I do really like it. (laughs) I am going to do that. Watched it relatively recently. That's that's why I've I've been trying to dedicate my time to things for this podcast, and Utopia at the time didn't seem like one of them. Now it would have been really handy if I'd done that in full. Does it have the same plot as what I've just described? Yes, completely. Yeah. Okay. It has the same writer, Dennis Kelly, but I'm not sure if he's got the writing credits because it's a copy-paste of the original or whether he's actually written it or not. I was just going to say, 
from what I've seen, which is the first 20 minutes of the first episode of this remake, it is going for something completely different. It's, I mean, it's the same story inherently, but it's in the look and the feel and some of the dramatic plot points, it is different from what I've seen so far. I understand the original is a blackest of the black comedy, but is that right? I can see why people may pigeonhole it as such, but I didn't find that many comedic moments in it myself. It's a lot more dramatic than it is comedic from memory. Okay, because this new one, the American one, is not a black comedy, I don't think. It's more dramatic with some jaw-dropping shocks with a bit of random comedy. I did have one huge issue in the first two minutes. A newly almost married couple pull up to a house to move in. The woman says, this is my granddad's house that he's left to me. They walk in and they realise then, seeing a house for the first time, that it's completely full of old rubbish. And this is the day they're moving in. Now, can you imagine moving in somewhere and not seeing it at all before you move in? That was a big problem for me, that they're moving in and they're actually seeing the inside of the house for the first time. On a personal level, completely agree with you. But given my insight, because I've watched Million Dollar Listening on Hey You, (laughs) people do blind buy buildings and properties and it shocks the hell out of me. I can't believe that's a thing. I don't know why you would purchase somewhere and not see what it's like first. But that is a thing in America. Well, this was a house that was basically given to this woman by her granddad. So it didn't. I mean, it was was an unfortunate start. The first minute I'm turning to my co-couch sitter and say, how have they not seen this house yet? How have they not seen this house yet? But it was uphill from there. Please, by the way, if you're ever in a social event ever again, given what's going on in the world, do refer to your wife as co-couch sir and see how that goes down. (laughs) What have you been watching? So this week, Netflix has copied Amazon's tact of mismarketing films to appeal to a wider audience. I came across the thumbnail for The Disappearance at Clifton Hill on Netflix. I thought this must be Netflix trying to out Amazon Amazon by having their own horror back catalogue. And I saw that this was in the top 10. I thought, okay, I'm in. Fancy horror film. Let's give it a go. The thumbnail couldn't look more horror-y if it tried. This is about a troubled young woman returning to her hometown of Niagara Falls where the memory of a long-ago kidnapping quickly ensnares her. Um... So the same as last week with our horror extravaganza of Welcome to the Blumhouse, of which 75% of that content was not horror-related at all. This follows the same suit. It's not horror. It's not horror. It's like a modern noir take on this age-old tale of an everyday Joe or Jen. It's remain gender-neutral. Going out of the way to play detective and get to the bottom of a mystery, finding themselves getting sucked further and further into it and just falling more and more into danger as the story progresses. It's set within this sleepy town, which has like a certain pinch of quirk and a strong help in a mystery. And it reminded me of Twin Peaks in that way, because the atmosphere wise, everything feels a bit off kilter. The musical score in this is really interesting and it helps to amplify that as well, because it's reminiscent of what you would find within a noir film and the sort of music they use but there's some really odd compositions. It's like they take it to the nth degree. It's quite over the top, and it just makes it feel rather unsettling, but I did like that. It has a really surprisingly intricate plot, 
with some frankly bizarre developments involving local magicians, tiger tamers, and real estate moguls. And speaking of bizarre, director David Cronenberg, he shows up here as a somewhat eccentric townsperson obsessed with highlighting the town's shady past and revealing the corruption that lies underneath its quiet and calm aesthetic. And that was really nice to see. I'm quite a fan of David Cronenberg. In addition to that, you've got the central character played by Tuppence Middleton, which I don't think I've seen her in anything else, but she's rather good. And she's got some revelations along the way that lead you to question her reliability as your main character and also her sanity. It really is one of those films that benefits from the less you know, the better. So I will leave it there. And it also helps me in not having to go in depth with my review. This was so different from what I expected. And I think that really helped with how favourable I am on it. But it is ultimately, unfortunately, let down by a really ambiguous ending that poses more questions than answers, which is definitely going to irritate a number of people. But regardless... I appreciated it for its ambition and the fact that I felt I was watching something a little outside the norm. So, yeah. Sounds very interesting. I've not actually heard of this. Could you give us the title again? Disappearance at Clifton Hill. Don't judge a film by its poster. Netflix has not even deemed it necessary to show me the thumbnail for that. So I must be outside of the algorithm on that one. I will check it out. It does worry me that, though, because there's so many hidden gems on Netflix that you just probably have no visibility of whatsoever. I mean, I don't know about you, but have you relegated yourself to what is presented to me, I will watch. I'm not going to dig any deeper because that's how I approach it. Yes, thinking of, thinking about it now, yes. Or what Netflix says is coming up, and I'll go, oh, I'll put that in my notifications, Emily in Paris, but then don't watch it and watch something else that pops up on the menu right next to it. <laughs> yeah, just, just makes me wonder how many... How many good things we're missing out on. But anyway, by the by. Now that you mention it, there are a lot of old films on Netflix, which seems obvious, but it does tuck them away. If you search for any one or two letters on Netflix, you'll find old films like The Perfect Storm from the year 2000 with George Clooney and Mark Wahlberg, which is a good film. Classic. If you like water, Perfect Storm. Great, great water film. Yeah, yeah, lots of water. What else have you been watching? Uh, only a quick shout out. So, <clears throat> bar Toy Story 4, I've not watched a lot of children's digital animation since then. Probably because I was wounded, because it ruined the franchise. Toy Story 3 was amazing. It's perfect. Should have left it how it was, but they didn't. Do you agree? Or have you not seen it? Just interested. In what? Toy Story 4. I've not seen it. Terrible. Don't bother. So I've mentioned it before, my son is obsessed with Green Eggs and Ham, and I've, if I haven't recommended that, by the way, do go and watch it, it's brilliant. It's one of the most expensive animation series of all time, but you can tell it's really well-crafted, lots of in-jokes, really engaging story, good stuff. However, I've, no exaggeration, seen at least 30 minutes of that program every day since he was three weeks old, so I calculated this, and that comes out at around 182 hours of Green Eggs and Ham, so that's enough. Don't need to see anymore. Need something else. So I sought out some other content, and I was presented with Over the Moon, a Netflix original digital animation film, and this is about a young girl dealing with the loss of her mother who builds a rocket ship in the hope of venturing off into space in search of a mythical moon goddess. So 
it's directed by Glenn Keane, who has quite the track record, actually. Uh, his credits include Pocahontas, Beauty and the Beast, Tarzan. He knows what he's doing. And within the first 10 minutes of this film, I was really taken aback by how poignant it was. Think up and you know where it's going. It's not quite as tear-inducing as that, but it did did bring a tear to my eye. But overall, I'm not going to go on forever. It's really catchy musical numbers that feel very Disney-esque. I'm not going to play in my car, by the way, but it, it is good. Uh, the animation was on par with anything that I've seen from DreamWorks or Pixar in the last few years. Really vibrant and colourful film with some real heart to it. Um, just a charming, pleasant viewing experience uh, and a nice piece of escapism. So that's Over the Moon on Netflix. Something positive for a change that we're putting forward? Not a murder in sight. Well, that's what we've been watching. But James, there's been some movement within the film world. Quite a lot's gone down in the last week. I'm eager to find out. It's real news. It's the real thing. It is now real, real news, news. First off, hitting the headlines this week, Quibi, the short-form Netflix for mobile devices that we discussed in episode six of In the Isles podcast. It's dead. The medium is dead. The platform is dead. We, I feel like we knew this was coming, James. What, what, what are your thoughts? It was floundering, wasn't it? It was the classic example of a floundering thing. I can't remember exactly in our episode which one of us was more optimistic than the other. I think we were willing to give it a bit of a chance, but yeah, there was nothing nothing positive being said about this at the time. So it's unsurprising. It, it is unsurprising. And just to add a bit of a background as well, if you're not aware, so Quibi is, as I alluded to, a platform where you can consume bite-sized media in five to eight minute segments on your mobile device, strictly on your mobile device. And in a time where people aren't, commuting that's quite a problem because no one's going to really watch it and then you also get the fact that having read up a bit more about this and how it materialized at the time this kind of arrived in conjunction with tiktok and that platform completely solves or scratches that itch for a lot of people so you do not need a multi-million or billion pound platform to deliver this for you it already exists but yeah the Founder, which is Jeffrey Katzenberg of DreamWorks. Um, he's the man behind this, along with a woman as well. Shan't forget her. CEO, Meg Whitman. Uh, they came out with an official statement this week, conceding that, he, <laughs> which I think is really admirable of them, actually, to say this out loud. But um, they said it might not have been a strong enough idea to warrant a whole streaming service, but it's also down to poor timing. And I think... Unless somebody rewrites history, that is a very, very appropriate thing to fall back on because, yeah, I'm sure coronavirus has, has impacted this completely. Um, but £2 billion investment for this service. Did you know that ITV invested in it, by the way? I didn't know that. No, I didn't. Um, surprising. But yeah, after, after everybody signed up for a trial, they lost 93% of subscribers after that first week trial. <laughs> Hang on, I don't think I understand that So. 93% of people that made, that made an account only did so for one week for the free trial. Yes. Oh, my God, that is really bad. Yeah. So I've, I've heard varying reports, but 
I've heard that it had 500,000 subscribers at the end, but then I've also heard 1.6 million. Either way, compared to your Netflixes and Amazon Primes, that is just like dropping the ocean. It's nothing, isn't it? I wonder how the investors feel about that statement that was released saying maybe it wasn't a good enough idea because in all the investor pitches, they will have said, this is such a good idea. This is worth all the money that we're getting. We've got $2 billion. What a great idea this is. Invest some more. It's fantastic. Fast forward less than a year. Actually, it's not a good idea. It's not. (laughs) And it just, obviously, the goal of this company is very different to a health organization, but it just makes you wonder, since April, had we ploughed £2 billion into finding a cure for coronavirus instead of this absolute shit heap, (laughs) maybe that would have been a bit more of a money well spent. But again, to remind you, the selling point of this platform as well that was that you could watch it in either orientation, so portrait or landscape. I didn't know this until this week, but apparently there was an ongoing legal dispute with a tech company called Eco who had patented that very technology. So they, they had everything against them, everything. Um, and there you go, it's dead. But the curious thing about this as well is that Apparently, they don't own any of the content that they produced. So, <laughs> the royalist. I don't know why, I don't, sorry. I don't know why that's making me laugh. It's just what a mess. So, what's going to happen to it? So, they have the rights to the content for seven years. And then after that point, it reverts to the creators of the shows themselves. Uh, and then it's, it's their product. But I suppose they have seven years to sell stuff that nobody was interested in in the first place. So take the example of the one with Christoph Waltz. Most Dangerous Game. Most Dangerous Game. Quibi can sell that to Netflix. I, yeah, I assume so, yeah. They can sell it to anyone now, but only for seven years. It would be funny if everything that they sold, say they sold it to Netflix, Netflix stitched everything together into one proper one-hour thing and no one realised. <laughs> they probably wouldn't, though. It, half the stuff, I don't know if you agree, I say half, we only watched two or three things each, but it seemed unnecessarily cut into segments. It would have just worked as a film. And I, I am curious because I think a lot of the content will do well on other platforms because I don't think, obviously there's a lot of shit on there, but I think there is some worthwhile stuff as well. Most Dangerous Game we both liked. Um, the Stranger, which I watched, I was quite favourable on. So maybe they'll have a second lease of life at least. But yeah, as far as Quibi itself, bye-bye. And you illustrated a point last week that you made in the original Quibi discussion, which was that if you want to consume things in bite-sized chunks, you can at your own pace. You watch Nocturne in (laughs) 10 nine-minute segments. (laughs) You didn't need Quibi or Amazon Prime to divide it up for you. You could use the pause button and... The technology that we have now allows you to resume your streaming media from the point at which you stopped watching it previously. Exactly. And all I needed to enable me to do that was an everyday lifestyle cue, such as, tea's ready, bring the bin in. (laughs) We cut that out. Something else I was thinking. Jeffrey Katzenberg has just had a massive public failure but he's still going to live the same luxurious life, probably. I don't know why I was thinking about that, and that's just the world that we're in, but it's a massive $2 billion failure. He's going to go, okay, I'll just get investment with something else. 
La 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 la. I'll move on <laughs> my life. Nothing matters. Meanwhile, 250 people are left jobless. No, it's it's not right. It's not right. It was nice for you to spare a thought, James. So I always thought you were the uh, unemotional type. I was obviously wrong. No, um, I do have emotions. Good. Not dead inside, after all. What's in your news segment this week? There's a lot of things flying around about Michael Keaton coming back as Batman. Did you mention this on a previous episode? I think I might have mentioned that I want to mention it, but then abandoned it because it wasn't clear, and it's still not clear. I think you said you'd received this news source from 4chan, and therefore we wrote it off. I think that's (laughs) what happened. (laughs) Every week there seems to be a new series of YouTube videos saying latest Batman Michael Keaton rumours. The latest one is that Michael Keaton was on Jimmy Kimmel promoting something unrelated. And Jimmy Kimmel said, oh, what's happening with Batman? And Michael Keaton said, oh, talks are happening. That's all he said. And that's generated loads of articles and YouTube videos all over the place. But at the moment, nothing has been announced. Nothing's been announced. Nothing's official. But there's been months. There was an article in The Guardian in July of this year about it. But as far as I can see, no one knows what's going on. And just as I've been looking this up, this Jimmy Kimmel thing, There's an article from a a day ago on small-screen.co.uk that says, my sources have confirmed that Michael Keaton is coming back for Batman Beyond on HBO Max. Do you remember Batman Batman Beyond? The animated series. Yeah, with an old Bruce Wayne and training a new Batman. Yeah. But the original rumour that's been going on for ages is that Michael Keaton's going to come back as Batman with Ezra Miller's The Flash in a Flash multiverse film i thought there was loads and loads of things to follow but all it is is these tiny little hints of information that blows up into the economy of articles and youtube videos and i wonder if it's michael keaton himself that is putting out these rumors and keeping it going it could be it could be but dc's strategy as we've said before seems so all over the place that I genuinely think they're putting the feelers out to everyone to explore any possible avenue for reinvigorating a franchise and then just doing as many as they can whilst they still make some money. Because I, I misread this article this week, but I heard that Jared Leto's or Jared Leto's Joker is given a second lease of life. And it was on about the Justice League film that he's going to do reshoots for. At first, when I read it, I thought, oh, my God, they're now doing a Jared Leto Joker film. They've just done a Joker film. (laughs) But I wouldn't put that past them. They've already got a Robert Pattinson Batman film in the works. They probably are talking about a Batman Beyond with Michael Keaton. They're just trying to completely and utterly hammer it into the ground, I think. I just I don't know what they're playing at. I wouldn't be surprised if it is them. Yeah, and in the good old days... It would take time to go from George Clooney to Christian Bale as Batman. And now we're going through three or four Batmans within a few years. I'd like to see that as a statistic, by the way, how many Batmans we've had over how many years. I reckon it's three in four, not in terms of releases, but in terms of announcements and projects that are in the pipeline. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's three in one year. It's three in a few months because it's Ben Affleck in the re-edited Justice League. Michael Keaton's rumours and Robert Pattinson. My point is there's no actual news on it. There's so much going around, but there's nothing confirmed and no actual solid 
announcement of anything with Michael Keaton returning. Well, give it a week. What other real news have you got? When you say real news, I'm going to stick to unsubstantiated news. So, uh, no, I say that. This is news courtesy of The Sun and Daily Mail, the most reputable news sources in the UK. So, uh, according to Drew McWeeny, who is an American critic, I believe, MGM are under immense pressure to sell the latest Bond film, No Time to Die. And the numbers that he has been made aware of are astronomical. I just did that. You can't see it on a podcast, but I did it in inverted commas. That's not actually what he said, but something similar. So the ironic thing about this is I read this and was instantly like, oh my God, we've got to mention this this week. I then read another article by Variety, which acknowledges that this was an explored option, but that it isn't happening. So the official word from MGM is, and I quote, we do not comment on rumors. The film is not for sale. The film's release has been postponed until April 2021 in order to preserve the theatrical experience for moviegoers. And that's from an MGM spokesperson. But the Variety article does cover the fact that this was something that was explored. It definitely was. And it was hinted by an insider that MGM were considering a $600 million acquisition of the film. I'm probably butchering the article a bit here, but one of the main reasons why this hasn't come to fruition is that there's a bit of a problem when it comes to the logistics of releasing it. So they've obviously got deals with sponsorship for the likes of, I think it's Omega Watches, Land Rover and Heineken, and they will not perceive this in the best light being dumped on a streaming service because they've obviously waiting for all this money to just fly in off the back of the film being released in cinemas. But I do think the more that these things are happening, I don't think this is out of the realms of possibility. If they, if they are willing to accept a $600 million sum for this film, I mean, Tenet and three, all right, granted, it wasn't released in American theaters, or at least it wasn't until later on. But what was that, $350 million that it took? $600 million off a $250 million budget is not something to be sniffed at. So I think if they can iron out those deals that they've got with the advertisers, I'd think this is just in the bag. I think the longer that it goes on, as we've said in a previous episode, I think they're going to go, do you know what? That's fine. And apparently it's Netflix and Apple that it could potentially arrive on. What do you think about this? I want to first pick up on one line from that statement, which was, we want to preserve the movie-going experience for moviegoers. Read between the lines, what they're actually saying is, we want to preserve the chance of this making as much money for us as possible, which is fine, but that is what they mean. Yeah, They don't care about the movie goers. <laughs> they care about how can we make as much money as possible. We're going to hold out and hold out and hold out. I wonder if it's a standoff between Wonder Woman, James Bond and Black Widow to see who blinks first <laughs> and who decides to pull the trigger and go for it. Tenet tried. That was like it was a test. Disney put out Mulan to see how much they could fleece out of people. But Wonder Woman and James Bond and Black Widow and I can't think of any more. Really big, recognisable ones. It's like they are playing wait and see. But I do think at this point anything is possible. And no statement that anyone makes, whether it's Gal Gadot on Twitter or MGM in that statement you've just made, means anything until they actually come out. Christopher Nolan, our God King, he's the only one that has committed and said i want this in cinemas that's what i want i've got the clout to do it and here it is watch it at your own peril the rest of them i just think they're hanging on to see how much 
money they can make and whether they can make any money at all, which is fine. It's a business. That's fine. But I do think that's what's going on. And I did, I don't know if it was the Variety article or something else that I read, but apparently No Time to Die has lost nearly, I think it's 50 million so far, purely due to the delays. So I don't know what that equates to. So was it just, oh, we'd geared up for releasing, but now we're not, and that's why we've lost the money? Or does it become like a ticking time bomb where the longer they leave it, the more money they lose? And therefore, for that reason, it might just be a matter of time before they do go down this route. Because I wasn't actually going to bring this up, but have you heard that after the failed experiment of Mulan on Disney+, Plus, they are now going to release their Temple Cinema Pixar experience onward on the Disney platform for no additional fee. Have you heard about this? No, I didn't. So, so did that, that never come out? Is that the one with Chris Pratt and Spider-Man? I believe so, yeah. Um, so yeah, they were gearing up for the cinematic release and they've just said, no, it's not possible. We've got our own platform now. Mulan was an absolute failure. Right, do you know what? It didn't work for us. We didn't get more subscribers. People were annoyed with the price point. We're probably going to make more money releasing it for free and drawing in more subscribers. That's the model that they've gone down. And I think, to be honest, especially with Bond, imagine how many potential new subscribers you could get to a platform like Netflix and Apple. You're going to basically draw in anyone who wasn't signed up in the first place because they are such huge releases. I think it is a good strategy to have, to be honest. Yeah. James Bond could have saved Quibi. <laughs> if only it was dissected into five-minute bite-sized chunks. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Another thing I was thinking is that all this is led by how fake all movie marketing is. They try to build up to one specific day and hype you up to try to make you believe it's this big event but really it's obvious anyway but now it's more visible really they've got this film on cd somewhere and they could just say oh it's ready here it is but instead they put so much money and effort into marketing and it just shows that it can be for nothing but it also means nothing and contributes nothing to the actual film because the film's just sat there and whether you market it or not it's just sat there I don't really know what point I'm making. It just <laughs> seems like it's it's shown what a big facade all marketing and press around films actually is. Yeah. I think what I'm trying to say is that films can be allowed to stand on their own or not. And this whole James Bond and Wonder Woman things shows that they're not allowed to stand on their own. You tried to trick us into thinking that they're good before we've even seen them. And then when we see them, it doesn't really matter because we've already paid our money. No, you're right. You are right. Big con, isn't it? Yeah. It's now rebrand the industry, Conima. Sounds far too much like Enema. So, anyway. On that note, main review? Yes. Hello, I'd like to order an opinion, please. This film is new, fresh point of view. Promise it back, this is a fact. We in the aisles, here are some aisles. Thoughts in sync, tell you what to think. I'll listen to you. Now, on to our main review of The Trial of the Chicago 7. You know why you're on trial here? The whole world's watching! The whole world's watching! You alright? No worries until I saw that. 
Martin's dead. Bob is dead. Jesus is dead. They tried it peacefully. We gonna try something else. These rebels without a job. They're a threat to national security. It's revolution. We may have to hurt somebody's feelings. When you came to Chicago, were you hoping to draw the police into a confrontation? I'm concerned you have to think about it. Give me a moment, would you, friend? I've never been on trial for my thoughts before. Sasha Baron Cohen leans into the claim that Borat 2 is too politicized by simultaneously releasing Borat 3 on Netflix. To squeeze as much politics as possible into one film, Cohen hired human word dispenser Aaron Sorkin to write and direct, and assembled a collection of individual talent rivaled only by an episode of Strictly Come Dancing, based on disturbing real events that could plausibly have taken place at any time in the last 50 years. It's Borat legal proceedings of the Illinois City 7 movie film. You're a liar, James. It's not what IMDb says. This is the story of seven people on trial stemming from various charges surrounding the uprising at the 1968 Democratic National Convention in Chicago, Illinois. Not what you said at all. And I believe this film has quite a long production, development, gestation history. Yeah, so it's apparently been in the works for quite some time where in its original form Steven Spielberg was attached to direct it many many moons ago and then he had to leave the project due to something which I've not written down Um, it's news to me but there's also been several attempts to dramatize this story when I said several attempts they exist there's about three or four versions I think the first of which was in like 1989 Again, haven't fact-checked. Get used to it. Will next week. This is also notable for being Joseph Gordon-Levitt's third main review appearance on the In The Owls podcast. He is the most prolific In The Owls reviewed actor in existence. What a title to have. <laughs> what, a piece of, <laughs> what a piece of history. Steve, Steven Spielberg and In The Isles are part of the history of this film. Who'd have thunk it? So before we get into it, James, I just w- wanted to find out from you, what's your opinion of Aaron Sorkin or your relationship with him? I like Aaron Sorkin, and I only realised that I did recently when I saw that he wrote Moneyball. I bloody love Moneyball with Brad Pitt, and Social Network, also brilliant as well. So yeah, he's, he's a good guy, good lad. I support his work, and seeing his name on this made me excited. I personally, huge West Wing fan. Don't think I understood the politics at the time, but as you may well remember, one of my first email addresses was the West Wing rules at hotmail.com. So yeah, fell off the wagon on the West Wing, but nevertheless thought it was amazing at the time. Without further ado, James, please do tell me, what were your thoughts on the trial of the Chicago 7? I do like my war films. I've seen all the Vietnam hits. Maybe not all of them, but the big names. Like Apocalypse Now, Platoon, Born on the 4th of July, Deer Hunter, 
So with that, and like anyone who's got a GCSE in history, I know a little bit about the Vietnam War, but I wasn't aware of these protests or the trial surrounding them. So I was totally gripped by what was going on. And having that basic historical background to it really helped me to get into this. It starts with a massive information dump and archive footage and lots and lots of names of the 10 main characters. But if you can ride that wave, it settles into a straightforward, which is by no means to say simple courtroom drama that is ridiculously well-written. It creeps upon you with its character dynamics and themes and politics and builds to what feels like a huge ending, even though it stays in the middle of this courtroom. As we've said, it's Aaron Sorkin, so it blasts you with dialogue, but it's not totally mind-boggling. It didn't lose me. I could follow it. I could follow what was happening, and I think that's a miracle that it manages to keep track of seven main characters in a way and their lawyers and the judge and it gives all the actors something to do in something that i think is only just over two hours this has to be the best cast on any netflix film the the talent in it is unbelievable and we'll get into that more later eddie redmayne and sasha baron cohen and their characters and their conflicting views of what success on the political left is was the main and most interesting, engaging drama for me. I just want to kind of talk about all the different little bits of this film that I thought were good. So that's my initial thoughts. Daniel, what did you think? So keep me true, keep me honest here, James, but I feel like 23 episodes into this podcast, this feels like the first dramatic film we've reviewed that's well and truly about something. Boy State aside, because that was a documentary, this is it. This is the first one. 23 episodes in, we've done it. We've reviewed something <laughs> that's actually of merit. So that was good. And like like quite a number of Aaron Sorkin's previous works, this is very politically charged as a film. And no doubt it has a very clear agenda. But provided, and this, this is me admitting my ignorance here, provided the film is largely true to its historical facts, I don't think it can be accused of being a form of political propaganda. Events simply are what they are. And if you think otherwise and think this is some sort of slight on the administration now or anything like that, you might be slightly more informed than me when it comes to US politics or history. But I feel that if that's your takeaway from this film, it almost goes against common sense and decency. And I think that is what the film is trying to get across, or at least that's what I took from it. From a filmmaking standpoint, it's very competently directed. It's nothing too special or to be revered. I'll steal your word from the other week when we were reviewing Welcome to the Blumhouse films, although please don't put this in the same sort of pantheon of, of those films because it's not. But it's solid. It is a solidly directed film and it gets the job done. That isn't a criticism as such. It's not the sort of story which demands any form of flamboyance or style when it comes to the direction. It is, as you said, dialogue heavy, which I expect from Sorkin. And it relies upon the hook of the drama within the courtroom to draw you into the story and sustain your attention. And I think it's really successful in doing that. It is overall a, I'm going to say, semi-inspirational story, but also a frustratingly relevant one. What should have been a revolutionary period of history hasn't quite had the cultural or societal impact that probably they hoped for at the time. And you mentioned it in your 
spoof review, 50 years on, things haven't changed all that much. It does feel very timely what's going on in the world today around the Black Lives Matters protests and general civil unrest in America. And I don't want to get political throughout this review. I don't feel equipped enough, if I'm honest, to do so. But it definitely did resonate with me personally in terms of what is going on in the world today. And because of that reason, I'm glad to hear that you experienced the same sort of thing as me. So I felt like this was a really accessible film and I feel like it should be applauded for that. If you're not familiar with the period of American history, and we went to the same school, James, so I am aware of some elements of, of what's going on here because we studied it, but it's not reliant upon that. The ideas of challenging the establishment and and standing up for what you believe in are extremely applicable to what we're going through right now. And and I really do applaud Sorkin for, for that because he tends to make the dialogue so quick and sharp in most of his other works that it's almost like a blink and you'll miss it type of fur, but I didn't feel lost with this film, like you said at all. I followed it completely. I'm not going to go on to the acting. You covered it. It is an absolutely exceptional cast. The acting is near enough flawless, with the exception that this is the second time this week I experienced a problematic accent by Sasha Baron Cohen. And more on that next week when we review Borat, but performance-wise, I thought he held his own against everybody else. All in all, I was extremely captivated throughout the whole thing. I felt informed and rewarded by the end. I would hazard a guess that this is the only film so far that we've reviewed that's likely to be an Oscar contender that, we, that we've covered. That remains to be seen. I agree. Well said. And with the agenda, yes, there is one. But like you say, I don't see how you can't side with the seven or eight that are in this film. And the way it puts forward the ideas and the politics it does it in such a way that it's a appropriate part of the story and you can't feel the writer over your shoulder saying, this is bad, the justice system is bad, don't you see? Look, look at how bad it is. You don't feel that happening. You're watching an extremely well-written story with really believable characters and you naturally come to that conclusion yourself and that's so much more satisfying and moving than something like the five bloods which in the case of the five bloods literally turns to the camera and tells you what the film is about and what it wants you to think and another thing is that the avatars of the conservative right mainly the judge he's not even the central drama for me he's there he's terrible can't believe he actually existed what an awful person like I said, the story for me was about Tom Hayden, Eddie Redmayne's character, and Abby Hoffman, Sasha Baron Cohen's character, coming to respect each other or not, or whether they could find a version of these ideas that might change the country. Probably a pointless observation, but were you surprised by how prominent he is in this, Sasha Baron Cohen? I thought he would have a bit part, and I was quite taken aback by how heavily featured he is in the film. He, he is pretty much one of the main characters. Didn't see that coming. I wasn't surprised only because one of the only images I've seen related to the film is Sasha Baron Cohen on a motorbike talking to people. And that just made me think, oh, maybe he's the main character then. Yeah, I, I knew it was a huge ensemble cast, so I knew that there wasn't going to be one main character. Do you see what I mean about how there's no one standout? It balances everyone so well 
because you can talk about Eddie Redmayne as the main character, but then I don't think you can. Then you put Sacha Baron Cohen in, but then Mark Rylance is in pretty much all of their scenes and they're all in the same room all the time, always talking. So there's just so many guys all getting time and that's what was so good about it. So we just watch people do good work. Yeah, I think... For me, I did feel as though it balanced it really well, as you said, there's seven main characters, or eight if you include Bobby Seale. But I think there are a few people who are a bit more fleshed out than others, but that cannot be levelled as a criticism at all because, as you said, they're trying to strike that balance of, of however many people it is on screen at one time. That is not an easy feat at all, and I, th- I think what they've achieved, as you said, is is nothing short of a miracle. I think that was using your words exactly, but I, I completely agree with you. I thought it was very well done. And Aaron Sorkin does something that's really good, and I'm sure it was intentional, is that the characters' names are said so many times. So in something like The Hobbit, I think <laughs> they introduce the 15 dwarves once, and then they obviously don't care whether you remember what the names are or not. And in the end, it doesn't matter. But in this film... People's names are said all the time. So I knew that Jawson Gordon-Levitt's character was Schultz. When someone said Schultz, I knew what they were talking about. And if you don't know who Schultz is and his name is said, you're just going to be lost. And that's part of the miracle is that the names are repeated so many times that you can keep track. What did you think about the what I would describe as a sparing use of archive footage? Are you referring to the demonstrations themselves that are inserted into the dramatizations of them when they're yes yeah um if anything i I don't think it was necessary it could have worked without it but i think just so that you feel a bit of a sense of authenticity that oh this is pretty much what happened at the time it didn't detract from anything it worked but and i think i'll come on to it in spoilers i have a slight issue with that because it's almost validating every single thing that this film puts across. And I think they do take liberties with a few things that as much as I've said, oh, it doesn't have that much of an agenda. Well, no, in fact, I said the opposite. It does have an agenda, but uh, one that you can't argue with. There is something to be said for omitting certain details that I think in reality were probably the case. I'm being really vague, but I'll come on to it in spoilers. Yeah. That's a good point. I, I didn't think of it that way, but yeah, it would have worked without it. Obviously, there's the archive footage at the start, which gives you Kennedy, Martin Luther King, set the scene. I'm not talking about that. It cuts in some archive footage, and I thought what it was saying was, this really happened, my word, this really happened, and I didn't mind. It added to the... It was like it was saying, we're not trying to create shocking, entertaining violence. We're putting this in because... We're telling this story and this did actually happen. That's how I saw it. Yeah. One criticism though, you can't do a film in this time period and not have all that sweet music. What, from the era? Yeah, from the era. I guess it was a decision not to do that, but how do you not have more music from the time? That was the only thing that it was missing for me that was keep holding it back from perfection was more period music because I've talked about Miss America which is set later on, but that's got a lot of music as well that really helps to place it in its time. This didn't, not an actual criticism, it just would have been nice for my ears to have some of that. I do see what you mean. I I don't think it would have uh, been a bad thing at all, but I suppose it just comes down to look at the cast 
they're probably paying a fortune. They just could not extend the budget far enough to acquire the rights to some of those songs. But yeah. Before we go into spoilers, Daniel, would you recommend The Trial of the Chicago 7? If you love limbs flying everywhere, loud explosions, car crashes, no. But if you want a bit of an intellectual thinky film about the world that we're living in today, or that mirrors the world that we're living in today, thought-provoking stuff, yeah, I'd, I'd definitely recommend. I thought this was a really, really, really interesting film to watch, and, and I'd recommend it to anyone. What about your good self? Yes, I would. So much so that right after it finished, I wanted to go back and watch it all again immediately. I didn't, but I had that feeling. Shall we get to spoilers? Yes. Bruce Willis. Real name is Tyler Durden. Sank at the end. Oh, thanks a lot. Spoilers. So the end of the film, throughout its entire runtime, we've had the defence being suppressed or hampered by the judge with his seemingly biased decisions. We then get to the climax of the film and Tom Hayden, a.k.a. Eddie Redman, is given a chance to speak on behalf of the other defendants and the judge, Frank Langella, warns him that he must give a short, respectful, non-political statement, but instead he decides to do a big two-fingers-up F you to old Frankie boy and decides to rhyme off a list of all the fallen within the Vietnam War, causing some uproarious drama in the courtroom as everyone stands with him in solidarity, remembering these people. And it's quite a powerful moment, you not think? Very powerful, I thought. I was tearing up. I was tearing up, but I've got to confess, I did feel slightly emotionally manipulated. So you get the soaring music, the inspiring nature of what he's doing, standing in the face of adversity and disobeying the judge, the resounding clapping in the courtroom and the cheering, and then to top it all off, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, his enemy, standing in solidarity with him. I just thought every tick box exercise that you could do to make me cry, you've done it right now, you have done it. But it, as cliche as that felt, it had me and it worked. But it did, did feel slightly on the nose. Yeah, they were adding a lot of icing to the cake, a lot of sugar. They were adding a lot of something to the something. I can't yeah. think of the cooking metaphor. Yeah, now that you've summarised the elements that were there, it was manipulative, but it was earned. It was completely earned. By that point, I was fully on board. I hadn't blinked for like the last half an hour. I was, if anything, thinking, manipulate me. Manipulate me and make this film two hours longer. I didn't mind it. Because that's the only part of the film that is soaring and emotional. Say if it was a Steven Spielberg film, there might be more emotional, soaring bits like that and intense speeches. There are intense moments, but that's the only bit where you get the soaring music, the, the clapping, the sense of victory. But it was so totally earned. Yeah. It was warranted in the end. Might have had a problem with it, but that's just me being a sniveling little uh, think I'm a critic kind of person. I'm not a critic. I'm an amateur. It's an amateur podcast. We do it for the everyman, don't we? And that's our brand. That's our brand. It's an everyman podcast. UK-based. So I think you said this before as well, actually, when you started your review. I knew about... I, in a generic way, knew about the history, but I didn't know about this trial. I knew nothing about the outcome of this case. It did pan out the way that I thought it would. Everything was stacked against them. They really had no hope, <laughs> given the, the powers that were, that were against them. You had, like, the jury tampering, 
judge bias. You literally have the entire US government and the presidency against them. So, okay, it was obvious where this was going, but I actually really liked the fact that it avoided that cliche of, oh, the ending moments of this film is going to be the verdicts being delivered. It just completely went over that and just said, no, we're not bothered about that. We're just going to put some little subtitles on at the end that tell you what happened historically. You don't need to see that bit. And I thought that was a very brave decision to make because that is where 90% of these films will end up is with that verdict. And I, I quite like that. Did you? I like that as well because they openly say, you have decided that we are guilty. David Dellinger, John Carroll Lynch, he says to the judge, we're guilty. You've decided that we're guilty already. So yeah, that's not in doubt. And they actually announced the guilt to the audience by having the Chicago Five by that point walk in in the white, what I'm guessing is prison uniforms. That's how you're told that it was a guilty verdict. They all walk out in their prison clothes for the sentencing and there's no dialogue and it pans across to the other two guys that have been left to not go to prison. So yeah, and I think you're right. That wasn't what was at stake in the story. For me, it was, can Tom Hayden and Abby Hoffman agree with each other on an approach? So to me, the finale was each of those two men coming to respect each other. So Sasha Baron Cohen's character, when he's on the stand, he praises Eddie Redmayne's character and defends him saying, let's have blood on the streets or something. And then the final moment of the film is Eddie Redmayne taking up the Sasha Baron Cohen tactic of being disobedient in the court and being more rebellious and more of a showman. So they be they become each other's supporters in the end. And that, to me, was the true finale. And I think they hint at that as well early on as well, that that, that is the underriding message of the film. Because I forget the actual line, but it's something about... It's the opening day of the trial. They go back to liaise with the lawyers and discuss how things have gone. And I think they're having an argument about this is not about us. This trial shouldn't be about us. And that is ultimately what happens at the end of the film is they're not bothered about what the outcome is and how it impacts them. They make it about those that were who they were fighting for from the offset, really, and and, and what the whole meaning of their activism was was based around. So I thought that was quite powerful as well. Yeah, and another thing it does is that it doesn't have them talk much about the reasons for their activism. I thought it's a given that we understand what is bad about the Vietnam War. That's covered in other films. I yeah. like that as well. You don't ha suddenly have someone turning to camera and telling you why the Vietnam War was bad. It's a given, and this is a story about these eight men and their two lawyers and the judge. <laughs> That's 11 people. <laughs> but yeah. then out of that, comes everything else and everything that is or was wrong with the system. There's just so many awesome bits of dialogue. Did you think that when the judge, Julius Hoffman, Frank Langler's character, he says to Tom Hayden, Eddie Redmayne, he says, I like you, you who stood up for me. I think you'll be a productive member of our system. When he said that, I thought that's not a good thing. You don't want to be a productive member of this system because this is <laughs> awful. It's awful. You don't want to work in the system. And just in that, it wasn't explicitly said, but I thought that's what it was leaving you to think that, do you want to be in this system? And maybe Sasha Baron Cohen, who is more on the radical side, 
maybe he's right because the system's obviously not working. There were so many bits like that that it let me it let me think in my own head what was was going on and what the agenda and what the message was. Mm. Can I ask you about Eddie Redmayne himself, the big man? I think films with him in, I think I've only seen The Theory of Everything, which is brilliant, but he disappears into Stephen Hawking. I think I've seen half of one of the Harry Potter spin-off ones and this. This really made me love Eddie Redmayne. For a character whose main thing that he does is to sit and not say a lot and just have it boiling up inside him, I thought it was so, so good. He's a really good actor. I want to see him in more stuff. Um, so no, I, I think I think we had a shared experience there. So not, I don't want to end on a sour note, and I don't know whether I'm just being overly sensitive. But I mentioned it before. Well, you asked me what I thought about the archive footage and how it how it benefited or not the film, and I said it was fine. It works, but it it almost got used to validate some of the stuff that they omitted. So I can't speak to this. I didn't live through the time. I don't know that this happened, but it struck me as extremely bloody obvious that when they were depicting the police brutality, it was 100% extremely one way. Aside from a scene where a woman jumps on the back of a police officer, it is almost exclusively everyone getting hit in the face by the police with nothing coming back at them all. And that just... In the archive footage, it's like that. No, sorry, just in the dramatization. And obviously, you get quick cuts to the archive footage that probably are selected and do not show that either. But it just struck me as slightly skewing the truth a bit, maybe. And and I'm not saying they don't acknowledge it all. They say that some of the people within the crowd threw bottles at the police or they said, no, right, onwards up the hill. And they, they were the ones that instigated the whole violence that, that then ensued. So I'm not saying they're completely without culpability, but I just thought it very, very convenient that there is not a shot in this film, unless I missed it, of somebody being violent back at the police. I don't know if you noticed that or not. No, I don't think there is, come to think of it. No, I don't think there is. It presents them as completely innocent, doesn't it? Yeah, and I think for what they were fighting for, and you get a good example of this at the end where Dellinger hits one of the security officers in the courtroom they're that angry about what's going on and how much they and how large the injustice is that surrounds them you're gonna get frustrated and if you've no other avenue to vent you might act out in a violent manner so i would understand it if that was the case but i think it is perhaps purposeful and a bit calculated in the way that it it does omit those details because I very much doubt that there was no comeback off everyone that was involved within those riots. It just didn't ring true to me that. Yeah, and what it does do, maybe instead of showing them fight back against the police, it shows Sasha Baron Cohen often coming to the very edge of saying we're going there to be violent. And it shows him saying those things in contrast to Eddie Redmayne's character who's been very peaceful. Can I ask you about Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character, Richard Schultz? He's the state prosecutor who is prosecuting the case against the Chicago 7. But what I thought was interesting and what makes this film stand above other things that have agendas is that his character is quite sympathetic. He plays it as a young lawyer that's under pressure and he says things in private to Sasha Baron Cohen and Jeremy Strong, which is obviously sympathetic. And you wonder if he's going to flip sides. And at the end, he stands for the 
reading of the names. And in a lesser film, that character would be the same as his older mentor who sat next to him, J.C. McKenzie. He would be an evil man of the institution, but it's not. Even that character has time to grow and do a lot in the performance. Did that register with you as well? Um, I'll be honest, I did feel a bit conflicted with his character. I think it definitely served a purpose and, and it has a bit of dramatic weight as well at the end with, with what transpires in them, those final scenes. But, I mean, you might be gearing up to it, but you mentioned about historical accuracies. I don't know whether it was done as a plot device or, or a sense of making you feel actually the majority, the consensus in this whole situation is that this is wrong. Everybody knows that this is wrong. And I don't know if that was just meant to emphasize that a bit more rather than it being what actually happened. And I did read something after the fact, which led me to believe, oh, you have actually manipulated this character to serve the end goal in in the film because he was apparently a bit of an ass and came down quite hard on the defense. But I don't know. Is that what you were going to mention? Yeah, yeah, that with his character, I think I've read the same thing as you, which was that he was not very nice in real life, that he was a totally different character, basically, that he was more over the top. So on the one hand, maybe you could say that it's wrong to portray someone who was not very nice as more sympathetic, but I thought that it was for the benefit of the film that you had a more nuanced character on that side, on the prosecution state side yeah and i think historically accurate it may not be but we've both said it within our reviews i don't see how you can come down on the side of not aligning yourself with the chicago seven they they've got such a good point and they're doing things for the right reason why not provide a bit of hindsight and, and counterbalance with a character on the opposing side that that realizes that this is ridiculous and we should really be doing more to honor what they're fighting for i I thought that it worked in that perspective yeah in terms of the historical accuracy i had a little bit of a look at what is accurate and what isn't the things that stood out to me as being not accurate is that a list of the war dead was read out but it was by the dellinger character at some other point in the trial not at the end all right and when barry seal is bound and gagged in the film it's for a few minutes and they immediately realize it's wrong in real life it was for a few days which is much 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 worse and that was very uncomfortable to watch um but i thought again it's a good adaptation of the true events and there's an emotional truth to everything that is in it so I give it a pass for the historical inaccuracy because there is a deeper truth to it. Yeah, and now that you have graced me with that piece of information that I didn't have, I think if they had the forethought to tone down that horrific scene of him being gagged and bound in court, if that had been there for half the film, like I would have been even more outraged but it, even without that, I still reached the same conclusion. I was still absolutely livid by the end. Frank Langella's character, oh my God, I wanted to kill that man. He was so infuriating. It was untrue. Yeah, 
God, that that judge was just unbelievable. And that is, I couldn't believe that that is accurate. That is accurate. You couldn't make up someone that ridiculous. And if you did, I would roll my eyes at it being an agenda. But he actually was that bad. And they give the statistical fact that he was rated as unqualified by 78% of lawyers that were in cases with him. What was the um, the most outrageous moment for you with him? It was when he says sustained before the prosecution even objects. <laughs> I don't remember exactly what it was for, but Mark Rylance is making his point. It's a good point. And Langley just says sustained. And Mark Rylance says he's not even objected. And then the prosecution says objection. He's not even hiding it that he's covering for the government. Yeah. What about you? What was your... I think mine was when, I might get this wrong, former Attorney General, was it? Michael Keaton's character? Yeah. He testifies, the jury is sent out of the room during his testimony, and he basically admits to the fact that the whole thing was investigated. The group were found not culpable for the riot being incited. <clears throat> and then the defence lawyer asks, oh, judge, are you going to present this to the jury? This is really important information. And he's just like, no. I was like, what the he- what the absolute hell? And, and do you know what? When, sorry, I forget his his name now, the guy who played the defence lawyer, but when he slams that book on the table, my God, I felt that. I really felt that because, and I'd love to know, I kind of wouldn't because it, it works in the film, but I would love to know how many of those little outbursts were, were real as well because you felt the frustration. Like, And even though you thought this is not following any code of conduct, within a courtroom at all, I could completely buy and understand why somebody would react in that way because it was so ridiculously biased that it just, it did infuriate me. It absolutely infuriated me. Yeah, and I love the way it built up everyone getting more and more annoyed because there's Sasha Baron Cohen and Jeremy Strong's characters that are being jokers from the start. So you expect it from them. And early on, Jeremy Strong says, dude, he's told you that four times. But then by the end, they're all, not all of them, you've got four or five of them punching people, doing outbursts. And then the big finish, obviously, is the most restrained of them all, Eddie Redmayne, reading out 4,000 names. It builds the frustration so well. Yeah, This is the only film we've talked about where just talking about it makes me want to go and watch it immediately after we finish talking. <laughs> I, I find myself uh, in the same situation actually the more that I've spoke about it with you the more that I've realised that it it probably and time will tell will be appearing in my top 10 for this year maybe hint yeah yeah. hint for a future episode yeah so no I'm glad we picked that one James but uh, have you anything else to say on on this fuck Trump no I'm not (laughs) (laughs) Uh, no I don't have anything else to say Likewise, but appears we are both more than on the kind side of this film, and that's putting it lightly. Extremely good watch. Netflix, well done. You don't just churn out shit week after week. Once in a blue moon, there's a gem inside there. So thank you for that. Anyway, it is our Sasha Baron Cohen two-week special. So next week, what we're reviewing, James? We're reviewing Borat's subsequent movie film. Well, until then, if you wish to get in touch with us, you can do so by emailing in the podcast at gmail.com. James, Instagram, how are people going to do that? In the Isles podcast. It's the purple and yellow profile picture. Very good logo as well. Well done, you. 
Right. Thank you very much. Until next week, keep your mouth shut. Don't have an opinion. It's the safest way to live your life. Bye-bye. Oh, God.